This is a fifth Sunday, and this is a Sunday where we do have all the children in here anytime there's a fifth Sunday. Um, normally, we would let the little ones come up here, and we might do an object lesson or something with them, but with the COVID, we thought probably that wasn't the best thing to do. They'd all be up here clamoring and crawling all over each other, so we thought it best just to, to leave when what they are. Hopefully, the next time we have a fifth Sunday, we'll be able to do that. Um, okay, we're now in week two of a still-yet-to-be-named series related to several of the big cultural issues that we face this year. And, um, you know, in doing this, as the deacons talked about, some of the staff, we really felt like what we wanted to do was take kind of a 30,000-foot view of some big biblical issues. Um, Really, I am constantly striving with myself, with our family. We want to have a biblical worldview for everything in our world and in our life. We want to know what God says about things. We want to think biblically. And so um, we're just trying to do that broad approach without addressing specific issues head on. Just want to speak into things generally. Um, As I said last week, please be patient with me. There's just so much to say and so many different angles, and I'm not going to hit everything. Even after last service, somebody's like, you could have said this, and that wasn't in an unkind way, and actually I am going to say that, but there's just so much that you can say, Um, and so I may have to come back and do some other topics in the future. We'll see. Um, But as I said last week, kind of wading into some dangerous waters with this series, because we live in very polarized times right now, especially COVID's created that kind of an atmosphere. But the deacons really felt like we needed to tread into these waters. So they said, I think we need to go there. Garen, you go do it, right? (laughs) Which I'm happy to do. Again, I asked for grace. I did last week. I had my grace bucket here from Tom Reese uh, during this whole series. totally unexpected when I came at the end of the service, second service last week and picked it up. I found that there were actually people had written notes, grace notes they had put in there, which were very much appreciated. I even got grace drawings. This is what grace looks like. If you've never seen grace, that's what it looks like. Got another thing that got put in there today. So um, I don't know if that's an invitation to do that or not, but just, just please, just asking for grace. Um, Well, I had some conversations last week with several people, some really good questions about what I talked about. And I thought I would hit a couple of things, um, and I'm not going to be able to hit all. So I'm going to end up, I think, posting some stuff on my blog um, related to this. One example is I got a question from somebody asking when I talked about the principle of moral proximity, they want to know, is that, was that a code way or another way of saying moral relativism, which is not at all, has nothing to do with moral relativism. It was just trying to communicate the idea that my moral obligation to, to a person is, is the more proximate they are to me, the greater the obligation to offer help, the further away from me, the less, but even that you know, has some give and take, because I've got a daughter in North Carolina that's far away, that, but I have some moral obligation to her. It's still confusing to talk about. Uh, had somebody ask about missions. Well, if we're to, if we're to primarily think, think globally, but act locally, act locally, well, why does this church have such this big emphasis on mission and on reaching the nations? And my answer is, is because last week, when I, talked, when I talked about how do I respond to national issues that the news puts in front of me, um, one of the things I said is I see with Jesus is Jesus refused to get drug into those, those bigger conversations, and he always wanted to keep things on the gospel. And so my answer is, why do we keep acting globally with the missions is because that is the gospel. I mean, two of the most important texts related to the gospel is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of 
all nations, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things. So the gospel is to go to all nations. In Acts 1.8, he says that you'll see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the othermost part of the, world, the earth. And so with the gospel, we have to not only think globally, we must act globally because that's what God calls us to do. And we do. We support missions, um, whether they're things in our Jerusalem, Emporia, our Judea, Lyon County in Kansas, our Samaria, neighboring states, or the othermost part of the, the world, which is the ends of the earth for us. So, um, so that was my answer to, to the, the missions question. Um, a couple things I want to hit from last week again, if you don't mind. Some things that interesting that happened this week. If you remember, my main topic last week was answering that question, do I feel the need to speak to every major national issue that hits the front page of the New York Times and Yahoo News? And I said, I do not. I used Jesus as my example from Luke 13 and spelled out why. Um, interestingly, this week, I was reading an article by somebody, and here's what he said in that article. He said, preachers must be very careful lest they allow CNN and Fox News, not to mention Twitter and Facebook, to set the agenda of their weekly pulpit ministry. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool because that's kind of what I was saying. Uh, and if you remember, one of my main focuses last week was on really keeping Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations front and center the main focus of our mind. And as my quad, my group of four, that we, as we were doing our Bible study together, going through the New Testament, there's a little devotional reading each day. And one of the readings kind of went along with that. Louis Palau, who's a very famous evangelist, wrote this. Far too many of us have become overly involved in various causes, and we have lost our perspective. Our priorities no longer are established by God, but by all the voices, many of which are sincere and good, that clamor around us. And so I kind of took that as a kind of another nod. Um, but I do want to say... Um, really crystal clear because I said I believe God calls us to think globally and act locally. And in talking about act locally, I just want to remind you, I did not say solely locally or exclusively locally, but I said primarily local, and I still think that. In fact, just yesterday, Pat and I were doing an online training with Del Tackett for some new small group material, and he had the exact same emphasis on acting locally and on loving your neighbor and he referenced James 2.8, where James says that Jesus, the Bible's command to love your neighbor as yourself, James calls it the royal law, the royal law in James 2.8. And Dell went on to say that the Greek word for neighbor is plesion, and what that word literally means is one who lives near, one who lives near. And Dell added specifically the people who providentially live near you, that they're not there near you by accident, but God placed them there. And he said that it's human nature to want our neighbor to be one who is far because it doesn't require deep, costly, sacrificial engagement if your neighbor is far. As C.S. Lewis says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. I think we all understand that, right? Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So that's just what I was um, trying to say last week. It's much easier to write a check to those helping foreigners than it is to get involved with an international student who actually lives locally in Emporia, Kansas, who's dying for friendship and for love. So 
All right, as I do this series related to what the Bible says to some of the big national issues we've been facing, I wanted, and the deacons as we talked, felt like we should speak to the issue, the idea of justice. Does the Bible talk about justice? Is it important? Does God care about justice? What is justice, really? And what's required of me in relation to justice? And so that's the topic I want to hit specifically. I want to talk about biblical justice, and I chose those two words intentionally. Um, We hear a lot about social justice these days. Um, I have no problem with the two words, but I want to tell you, I've learned people have various responses to those two words, social justice, simply based even on which generation you're in. When you hear those two words, social justice, you'll have totally different ideas and different emotions that'll come up from those two words. Um, So I could use that phrase, social justice, but I choose not to because I really feel like it's become a buzzword these days. And I think, though it's not a bad phrase, I think the problem with it to me is it is unhelpful because it's so ill-defined. In some ways, the phrase social justice has come almost like the word Christian, it can mean anything and everything. It's whatever you want to pour into it is what it means. And trust me, there are a lot of examples I give you of some strange things that have gotten poured into that phrase. And if you know me well at all, you know I don't like to use language that I think has become overused and has lost its meaning and gained baggage of some kind. So I just want to talk about biblical justice. Is that okay? And if you don't mind this morning, I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. I'd like to ask that we clear our minds of any preconceived notions and emotions, whatever that word justice even brings up, I'd like us to set those ideas aside, and I would like us to see what the Bible says about justice. So can we do that? We just kind of set aside whatever some of those ideas and emotions are. Okay, I, I don't think I need to convince any of us of the reality of injustice in our world or the need for justice. I mean, we, we, if we think biblically, we live in an upside-down, broken world that's very sinful. And it's all about power and gaining advantage for yourself, right? It's about fighting. People are fighting for what they see as limited resources. We fight for our own advantage at the expense of others. That's the world that we live in. And I think we've all experienced injustice in some form or another. At one time or another, we've all been on the bottom of the pile, felt helpless, Um, felt like the system and its rules were stacked against us. So I think we all know what it feels like to one degree or another. So with that, let me kind of jump in. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. And I don't know why I told you that. It just, I love the Hebrew words, so it sounds cool to me. One of the key texts found in the Bible on justice is in the Old Testament book of Micah. So I'd like you to turn to Micah with me. Turn to the book of Micah. It's a minor prophet, so it's it's not easy to find. It's in the, the back part of the Um, Old Testament. If you're on your phone, it's probably a little easier to find, but it is towards the end of the Old Testament, after the book of Jonah, before the book of Nahum. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah, I mean not Isaiah, Micah, chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading it out of the NIV. Um, I'm also going to have it on the screen, so I'd like us to stand. Would you stand with me? I'd like to read it. You can read it you know, if you read it out of a different translation out of your Bible, it might sound weird if you're not reading the same thing we are, but you can read it out of your Bible if you have an NIV, or you can join us with what we've got here. So would you please join with me? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. The... Why don't you go to the next slide for me? The New American Standard says to do justice. The King James to do justly. The contemporary English Bible see that justice is done. Those are some of the translations of that. But from this key text, we can see that the Lord requires three things of his people that, that we should be known for. We should be known for loving mercy. We should be known for doing justice. And we should be known for walking humbly with our God. So what does it mean to do justice? What's it mean? Let me compare it with loving mercy. Give you kind of a contrast. So to love mercy is to perform concrete and practical acts of mercy to hurting people. It's to love and care for the truly needy, the truly neglected, those who are most disadvantaged in society. But to do justice is to go one step further by addressing the systems that hurt and oppress the needy and the neglected. To love, mercy is to address the symptoms, and don't, that word's not meant to be negative at all, um, but to do justice is to address the systems that create the symptoms. A mercy ministry rescues a young woman from sexual trafficking. A justice ministry goes after those at all levels who benefit from the exploitation of that young woman. Let me give you an example of this using International Justice Mission, a mission that our family that we support. Here's what their website says, what we do. Slavery and trafficking still exist today. There are more children, women, and men trapped in slavery than ever before in human history. People are beaten, raped, and starved for the profit of others around the world. Slavery is a multi-billion dollar industry. It exists because oppressors can freely abuse vulnerable people without fear of punishment. We partner with local law enforcement and justice systems to end it for good. Who we are. We are a global organization partnering with local justice systems to end violence against people living in poverty. And here's our model. And I want you to listen to these two in light of ministry of mercy and a ministry of justice. Number one of their three-point model, we rescue and we restore victims. We find enslaved people, we bring them to safety, and we walk alongside them until they are restored. That's a ministry of mercy. Number two, we bring criminals to justice. We relentlessly pursue justice in court. We ensure that traffickers, rapists, other criminals, and local officials who enable it, that they all go to jail so they cannot abuse, exploit, or enslave others. That is a ministry of justice. And then their third model, the third point of their model, we str strengthen justice systems. We provide training, mentoring, and support to police, judges, and other community leaders to slow down and stop the cycle of violence. Again, that is a ministry of justice. You see, both, I think, mercy ministries and justice ministries, both are important. 
We dare not, not neglect one for the other. In fact, somebody after first service said, if you have a ministry seeking justice, but you really don't have mercy for the people you're helping, like what's the point of that if they don't feel your love? And she said, but if you say, all I'm doing is I'm gonna love you and help you, but you wanna deal, deal with the system that's, that's, that's over them and causing the issues, then what kind of love is that? Some have written that the American, modern American church, that we have excelled at mercy ministries, but we have neglected justice ministries. We are great at rescuing young women, but we fail to remove the system that exploits those women and will continue to take advantage of other young women if we don't take it down. So that's why we must do ministries of mercy and compassion and ministries of justice. We can't simply rescue women, but we also have to work on that whole system that allows it, that supports it, that undergirds it. Now, I forgot to ask you to keep your finger in Micah. I hope you're still there. I want to show you how this works in the book of Micah. So first, I want to take a minute. Turn to chapter 3, verse 8. In chapter 3, verse 8, I just want to introduce you briefly to Micah the prophet, the one who is crying out on behalf of God for justice in the city of Jerusalem. So chapter 3, verse 8 of Micah. Here's what he says of himself. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with what? With justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression to Israel, his sin. I mean, we just read his cry in Micah 6.8, to do justice. And Micah the prophet talks to three groups in the city of Jerusalem and their relation to injustice. Three groups, three levels of injustice. He speaks to the perpetrators of the injustice. He speaks to the rulers and the judges, and he speaks to the religious leaders about their involvement in it. So let's start with the perpetrators. Chapter 2, it's, I would say you, flip, you don't flip much in Micah, but if you flip to chapter 2 of Micah, chapter 2, and I want to look at verses 1 to 2, because here is one place he's addressing the perpetrators of injustice. And here's what he says to them. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and they seize them, houses and they take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. So there is this group of, of men and women, I don't know, men probably in that day and age, but who were, who were defrauding people of their property in the city of Jerusalem. If you read Micah, there was a lot more going on than that. But I want to turn now to Micah, I want to look at Micah 3.1, and I want to turn my focus from the perpetrators to the rulers who allowed and supported the injustice. So in chapter 3, verse 1 of Micah, here's what he says. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? I mean, he goes on, but to me that's a question. Should you not embrace justice? Go down to verse 9 of chapter 3. Hear this, you leaders. Um, of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness, her leaders judge for a bribe. And I'll stop there. But the, so obviously, they're taking bribes from the perpetrators of the injustice to just to overlook it, to not care, to not do anything about it. Turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 3, talks again about the leaders in the city of Jerusalem. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. And we're going to stop there. I'm going to come back to this verse in just a minute. 
But in the rulers, these are men who are taking bribes, they're accepting gifts, they're dictating the things they desire. And by taking those bribes, they're allowing the injustice to continue. But even the religious leaders had a part in the injustice in Jerusalem. Look at, again, we're in chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 11, what it says about the priests. Verse 11. Just going to take a phrase out of it, but it says in Micah 3.11 that her priests teach for a price. They were teaching the things they taught because they were getting paid to say the things that they wanted them to say. We don't know what they were saying. Perhaps they were teaching things that allowed injustice like the Pharisees taught, unjust practices that hurt parents, the whole Corbin thing, but gained them and the temple money in Mark 7. I, we just don't know, but they're teaching something for money. Look at the prophets in verse 5. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. They say shalom if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. So as long as those guys are giving them the money that they need, they'll say, hey, shalom, everything's great in this city. So now I want to go back to Micah 7, 2 to 3. Because I think this is a crucial text in relation to this whole concept of justice. So in Micah 7, 2-3, here's what it says. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. And to me, this phrase is so important. They all conspire together. At every level of the perpetuation of the injustice, they are conspiring together to make the whole system work. So you had the perpetrators of injustice, you had the rulers and the judges, you had the religious leaders, even the people who were all working together to create, to uphold, to sustain an unjust city in the city, unjust system in the city. And God was condemning not just the individual acts, he was condemning the system. So, in Micah 6.8, God calls us not only to show compassion and mercy and care for the suffering, the disadvantaged, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the marginalized, those on the fringes, the ignored, the left out, the helpless, the weak, those taken advantage of, not only to show compassion and mercy for them, but he also calls us to work for and to seek justice for them. Let me try to define justice. I think we've got a slide for that. And this is, I've taken, um, yeah, sorry, I went through all that. I, that was for you if you wanted to take notes. Go to the next one. Um, this is taking a, a definition from Kevin DeYoung that I've tweaked some. And I've even tweaked it more after I made the PowerPoint. But here would be a definition of justice with three parts to it. Justice is being kind and impartial in our dealings with all people, especially the weak and the vulnerable. Just leave it at that for one. But it's being, it's being impart, kind and impartial in our dealings with all people. Number two, looking out for the weak and the vulnerable. And three, working for systems and structures that care for and protect the weak and the vulnerable. So it's not only me being impartial in all of my dealings with every person that I meet, but it's also me looking out for the weak and the vulnerable, and it's me working on behalf of the weak and vulnerable whenever I see systems and structures that are against them. 
This last part of the definition, this working for systems and structures that care for, for and protect the weak and the vulnerable, is a very important part of biblical justice because God speaks to it. Go ahead. The next slide has some scripture. Let me read some scripture to you. In Psalm 82, 3 to 4, God says, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In Isaiah 1:17, God says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. God through Solomon tells us in Proverbs 31, 8 to 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Jeremiah in chapter 22, verse 3 of his book said, this is what the Lord says, do what is just and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. And by the way, that last, can you back up for a second? That last part of this justice definition, the number three on there, that working for systems and structures that care for and protect the weak and vulnerable, that is what makes doing justice so costly and so much more dangerous than simply doing mercy ministry. Because if you just rescue one girl, you know, they may let that go because they can get a whole lot more, right? But if you come against the system and the people who do it, they will come against you because they've got power and they've got resources and because they have the most to lose if you're going after the system. Okay, can we go back to the scripture? I think that you've already gathered it, but I really want you to know, I really want you to know that justice is near to the heart of God. It is near to the heart of God. Isaiah 30, 18, Isaiah says the Lord is a God of justice. In Isaiah 61, 8, God himself says, I, the Lord, love justice. In Psalm 146, 7 and 9, David said this about God. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner, and he sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. I mean, you know justice has to be near to the heart of God because the whole story of Israel is the story of a people living in bondage for 400 years that he delivered from that bondage. And that's why God commands in Amos 5.24, let justice flow on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Love that scripture. And justice was central to Jesus. All you have to do is look at his first sermon in Luke chapter 4 and one of his last sermons in Matthew 25 to know how he felt about the least of these. Matthew wrote this of Jesus in Matthew 12, 18 to 21, quoting Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel, quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And in Matthew 23, that really powerful chapter where he's coming strongly against the religious leaders, in verse 23, he says to them, 
Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So to Jesus, justice is part and parcel of loving God by loving our neighbors as ourselves. I talked last week about the gospel and how the gospel has to be central in everything we do. And I really believe that justice and the gospel are inextricably linked in two ways, at least two. First, it is linked to the gospel in its proclamation. Several years ago, I taught a model of evangelism that I call building bridges. It's how we train people with internationals to reach out to them and share the good news. And I taught to them that sharing the gospel is a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin is word, and on the other side of the coin is deed. On one side of the coin is proclamation. On the other side is demonstration. Most of the time, before a person will hear the good news, they have to see you be the good news. Does that make sense? That's why that's modeled after Jesus in Luke 24, 19, where Luke tells us that Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. So remember, if you don't know, if people don't know that you care, they will never care what you know, right? If I am not a person who works and does ministries to people of mercy and justice, if they're not seeing the good news, they're not going to care about the words that I say about the good news. They're, to me, they're inextricably linked. They go together. Not only that, I think the gospel and justice are inextricably linked in, its, in the gospel's application to my own life. Because justice is close to God's heart, and therefore it will be close to the heart of those who were truly redeemed. I think accepting the gospel has very practical ramifications in our life. You cannot believe the good news of Jesus. You cannot welcome him in your life as your Savior and your Lord and remain indifferent to the suffering of people around you. God loves. God is love, so we love. God is good, so we are good. God is just, so we must be just. You know, and throughout the history of the church, the gospel and justice have been inextricably linked. I was talking to a missionary about um, the topic of justice and the gospel. And he said that he saw firsthand how the jungle tribes, formerly in a cycle of violence, of revenge and retaliation, became peaceful after the gospel entered that society and people accepted the gospel because he saw how it changed people's hearts and values and it resulted in social change, how the gospel changed them. If you know much about the history of some of the recent great revivals in Western culture, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, those gospel revival movements all brought with them huge amounts of social reform and social change. The, to me, the best example is William Wilberforce, which came out of the First Great Awakening, his conversion. And his group he put together called the Clapham Sect. It's a very interesting group that... Came, people who came to know Jesus and wanted to spread the gospel, but they also felt called by God to bring mercy and justice into to Britain. And I mean, if you read all, um, all of the things that they did to bring change to that society, it's, it's crazy how much they did. Just one example I was sharing with Pat last night. Um, debt. And the way debt was handled in England back in the 1700s, 1800s, it was like cruel it was horrible. If a person owed debt, 
owed you debt, you could have them arrested and they would be thrown in debtor's prison. And they would not only throw you into debtor's prison, they would throw your wife and children into debtor's prison. I think they said that 90% of the people who were thrown into debtor's prison in England at this time in history owed less than 10 pounds. 90% owed less than 10 pounds. The average debt of a person in debtor's prison was two pounds. Two pounds. Do you know how, how easy it is to pay off debt when you and your wife and children are in prison and unable to work? Because in their prisons, there was no work to make money. You were unable to pay that debt, and so many people died in debtor's prison. I was curious what two pounds would be the equivalent of today, and two pounds then would be the equivalent to $220 in the U.S. today. Can you imagine you loan $220 to a friend, tell him you'll pay him back at the beginning of October, and then you don't, and he could have you thrown into debtor's prison with your wife and your children, unable to work and make money? Can you imagine that? Over $220? So what they did is, first, they started giving money to pay the debt of people to set them free. In the first 11 years, they freed 7,743 debtors, plus their wives and their children. After 11 years, they had freed 26,707 people from debtor's prison by paying their debt. After 40 years, about 40 in 1829, in that year alone, they bought and released 43,399 people out of debtor's prison. Isn't that crazy? But they didn't just do that because that's a ministry of mercy. They went to work on the system. And through William Wilberforce, they lobbied and changed the debt laws. Debt laws which, listen to this, they argued are enormous, absurd, irrational, and injurious to the state to the debtor and the creditor, enriching only pettifoggers. Now, I don't know what a pettifogger is, but I hope there's no pettifoggers here this morning because it's not good for pettifoggers to be in church, I don't think. Anyways, it was enriching, enriching only pettifoggers, bailiffs, and jailers who generally are the worst, meanest, and most detestable of men. Their society that did this, they created, was called the Society for the Discharge and Relief of Persons Imprisoned for Small Debts. That was the name of the society they created that did this. Back then, they'd give like a 20-word name to everything. Like, you read the book titles. Book titles are 100 words long. They created, you know, we create a ministry internationals. It's called Focus. They create a thing. It's like 20 words. But it's just, just to read some of the stuff they did. And then when people got set free from the debtor's prison, they gave them a tract uh, that, that, that told them, one, to be thankful and grateful. They had thankful in capital letters, really interesting, to be thankful and grateful to those who, who set them free. And then it talked about ways that they could make sure they don't get in debt in the future, and it also gave them the gospel so that they'd have heart transformation and not get back into that. So all of that's to say is, wherever the church has been throughout history, the gospel and justice have always been inextricably linked. So, Kind of wrapping up, as we saw, justice is rooted. It is rooted in the character of God. God is God, and he is a God of justice. But I also find that it's rooted in a very important concept that's found in Genesis 1 at the very beginning of creation. Even before you have the first sin and the first injustice in Genesis 3, this concept of justice is already rooted in a very important concept, and it's the concept of the image of God that he planted in the first man and woman and in every human being. And so next week, that actually is going to be our topic, is we're going to do a tour of the Bible on the topic of the image of God. 
So let me bring this home practically to those of us living in Aporia, Kansas. Um, at some point, I said last week, there are tons of national and international issues that are vying for my attention and your attention. So many that I think we experience information overload and we end up doing nothing most of the time. Like I said last week, if you try to serve the latest issue being put before you on the national news, you will find yourself overwhelmed. So here's my challenge this morning. We all feel the brokenness of the world in one, maybe two particular ways. I think there's likely one place of pain in the world that really has your heart. And I believe God's placed that there. That's part of your calling, is where your ability meets the world's desire, pain and desire and brokenness is a way, a place God's calling you to. For me, that's been two things. Two things where I felt uh, the pain of the world. One, having two daughters. I care a lot about sexual trafficking. I am unsure if there are local expressions of that. If there are, I'm unaware of them. So, through International Justice Mission and Threads of Hope, I am, a, I am able to seek to support those who seek justice in places that I can't be and to pray for them. But as I said last week, though, I am called by God to primarily seek justice where it is lacking locally. I am primarily, I do that, but I'm primarily called to seek justice where it's lacking locally, where I can touch and personally interact with real flesh and blood people who live in Emporia, Kansas. That's my primary calling. And so for me, this was, still is, international students. I still volunteer and help out with them in various ways. I still keep connected with some students. Most of what we did with international students in that ministry was mercy kind of stuff. It was just meeting a lot of real needs they had, among them being friendship. But there were times I found myself advocating for them in the university, at least twice, or locally when I saw something or someone or an institution doing something that disadvantaged them in some way. So while it was primarily a mercy ministry, there were times that I stepped forward and worked for justice for them. So my question is, what cause of justice is on your heart? What has God given you a passion for? For you, it might be the elderly, prisoners, abortion, it could be teen pregnancy, racism, poverty, hunger, addictions, homelessness, child abuse, adoption, foster care. If you don't have one, I really challenge you to begin praying for God to put something on your heart because I really believe he puts at least something on our heart as part of his calling on my life in a way he wants me to have impact in the place where I live. But whatever it is, get involved. Start by asking God, what can I do? Yes, globally, but primarily locally. What can I do primarily locally? And ask yourself, what's the greatest need here locally? Um, it might be a ministry of mercy, meeting real needs. It might be a ministry of justice coming against an unjust system. It might be both. And then prayerfully band with others who have that same passion and work together for it. That's how Shiloh started. It started on a Saturday morning in this very room where Cindy Rudy and Carol Alderman were sitting at the same table and didn't know they had the same passion for the same thing and got to talking at a session, a thing that we did, and found that out, and Shiloh was birthed out of that place.
Uh, I do want to say one thing about whatever you choose to do or whoever you choose to work with, be careful and discerning because not everything that claims to seek justice, I don't think is seeking justice. So be biblical in how you think about things and make sure that the gospel is an important part of what you're doing, okay? I believe we're called as God's people to be known for our love and our pursuit of justice. If you remember the story of God diagram that we did, remember the, these things down here, over here? Talked about we are sent to heal. When I come to know Jesus, I'm sent to heal a broken world. And to me, justice ministries and mercies, mercy ministries are a part of that being sent to heal. And make no mistake about it, make no mistake, to love mercy and especially to do justice is a radical, selfless way of life. It means to courageously take other people's problems upon myself. And that is not, never convenient and it's never easy. But it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of Jesus. So Old Testament scholar Bruce Walk, he says in his commentary on Proverbs, he says the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. While the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So let us be a community of people known for our willingness to sacrifice on behalf of others, especially those that Jesus calls the least of these. Because he has shown you, O mortal man, what he, and he has shown you and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Father, make us that kind of people. Make us a people who walk humbly with you, that we are known for our relationship with you, that we manifest that, and that it is manifested in acts of mercy to those in need, but it is also manifested, Lord, through us in acts of justice to those who are needing justice. So make us that kind of people so we can reflect you well to the world, and so our light would shine and our good works would cause people to give you praise in heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you leave... I'm going to end, if you don't mind, this, this kind of was a last minute thing, but I want to end by sharing a very local need. Can I do that? I'll be quick, I promise. COVID's hit all of us in really hard ways, right? All of us. Even lately, it's just, it's like the never ending, constant change, right, of things. And it's hit the church hard. And I don't mean just our church, many churches, most, all the pastors I talk to, it has hit every church hard. Um, and with anywhere from 40 to 50% of the congregation cho choosing to worship from home online due to their concerns about the virus, um, which is totally legitimate, the number of volunteers has drastically dropped, drastically dropped. Um, like I said, every church is struggling with this. It is no one's fault. It just is what it is. We've had a con last week, we had a conversation. We've actually had a kind of two, but last week it was a big one of the lack of volunteers that we have right now to do some of the things we feel like God's called us to do. We are very shorthanded and needing volunteers in the nursery. Jordan's needing some help with the youth ministry. Our welcome ministry is needing some assistance. Uh, boy, we are needing help with the chair setup ministry that happens Saturday nights. We could use some young strapping guys to help us once a month. I see some young strapping guys right now. Um, needing help with children's ministry especially our Sunday evening program, children's program, Delta. And as we talked last Monday, I'm sorry to say, we may not be able to have Delta this fall due to a lack of volunteers who assist in running it. So we need at least four to five volunteers signed up by tomorrow morning 
in order for us to even offer Delta. It's just, it's just the reality of living in COVID right now. Um, so to those of you who attend 12th, but you may have never really gotten involved in serving the body, I would like to make a plea to you based on Paul's words in Romans 12, 4 to 5, where he says in the NLT, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, but we all belong to each other. So if you've been attending, but you've yet to throw your shoulder into the work here at 12th, I really want to invite you this morning before you leave to even say a prayer and ask, Lord, are, is there a way I can get involved in not just attending here, but serving here? Um, I'd like you to ask that. We're going to have individuals who represent all of those. I know we've got Laura back there, who was with children in Delta, Julie with the nursery, Ben, like for chairs, Melissa back there, you want to wave Melissa, she's behind the information booth, the welcome center. It's hard to see faces back there. I'm like, who are those masked people? Is that Lisa? Yes. And Lisa, you're here representing, you're just standing. (laughs) Charlie, you're just standing too, right? Yeah, I don't, if you, come grab me if like you want to work with the youth, since Jordan's not here, come grab me. But um, just pray about that and consider the need, because we really have the need right now. And I'm not into like talking about this kind of stuff, not into guilt tripping anybody, but really if you've been here attending but not serving, really pray about that. So grab one of those people. Let me finish with a word of prayer again. Can I do that? Father, um, I pray that you would meet our need You say that you're the Lord of the harvest, that we are to pray to you for laborers, and Lord, we're just in need. That's the reality. We just sung that the battle is not mine. You're the one who builds your church. I'm just to make disciples. So it's your battle. We're just needing you to speak to some hearts and to raise up laborers who can help us to, to, to do some of the ministry we feel is important in this time when we can't have all of our body together. So I just ask that you would be speaking into hearts. Again, thank you for who you are, for your goodness, your love, your mercy, for your justice. May we be that kind of people. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And as always, you are sent to live justly and sent if you feel called to go sign up with somebody to serve. So we'll see you next week.